I want to focus on Mark chapter 1, verse 40. But I want to read the uh, verse, verses 40 through 45 so that we receive the, the proper context. It says, And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him, and immediately sent him away, and he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we praise your name. We exalt the name of Jesus. We ask that you receive the worship this morning, God, that you are glorified in all that we say, think, and do. Lord, we praise you for your magnificent grace and your mercy, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has been one who is perfect and obedient unto death. Lord, that his shed blood may ransom sinners such as ourselves. Lord, let us not stray from the truth of the cross. And as we read this particular passage in Mark this morning, Lord, so oftentimes, as we're brought up in the church, we see this as simply a, an instance of a miracle. And we leave it at that, Lord. But God, I pray this morning that as your people, you would reveal to us the truth of Christ in this scripture. The truth that this man is not the only one who has come to Christ unclean. God, let us see ourselves in this leprous man. And let us see the all-sufficient power of Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God. And we just pray that you would be with us this morning and comfort us and teach us, Lord, that we may grow spiritually for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so when we come to Mark chapter 1, I want to give you a little bit of background it's interesting that if you turn to the very first verse of Mark chapter 1, you'll see this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. These are the first words that you see. Now I said it's an interesting choice of words, but let us recognize that Mark is not the man choosing these words. Rather, from inspiration through the Holy Spirit... God himself is inspiring men to pen what we have before us, the Holy Scriptures. So Mark hasn't chosen, but the Scripture has chosen for Mark to pen it in such a way. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, describing who Jesus is in his deity, both man and God. The, the record that we have in Mark is a record of sin and carnalities amongst men. It's a, a record of perfect righteousness in Christ. But it tells us of the flesh, and it's still a record of redemption in Christ, provided through God by the man Jesus Christ as he dies upon the cross. And as we examine this opening verse, we notice it is rightly named 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because this is the first time we hear of the gospel, but this is the first time that there begins to be a revelation of the gospel that was once a mystery. It's the first time that anyone is really hearing of Jesus Christ being the Messiah. It's a beginning of His earthly ministry. And in fact, the next seven verses will depict the ministry of John the Baptist, the predecessor, the forerunner to Christ. And these things are happening in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Isaiah chapter 40 says, In the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is a direct quote that we see here in Mark. It goes on to say in Isaiah, Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's nothing better to depict for us how the Holy Spirit has inspired the words in Mark chapter 1 in the the Bible in its entirety. It's the spoken word of God. It comes from His mouth. And it tells in Isaiah about John the Baptist as he'll come and be the predecessor to Christ. So the beginning is literally speaking here, not as if Christ were have to just been born or have just come into existence or just now become one who is living because He isn't suddenly born here in Mark chapter 1. We know that for sure because He's a man. He's beginning His ministry at around the age of 30. It says about because He's infinite eternal God in the flesh. And so it's really speaking when it says in the, this is the beginning, it's saying the beginning of the gospel, it's the, the beginning of the ministry, the commencement of His ministry on earth. The signs, the wonders, the miracles that Jesus would perform, they begin here. John chapter 20, if you'd like to turn there, tell us a lot about what we, what we should expect in this particular ministry. John writes this towards the end of his book. But the truth is that it's about everything in his book. Chapter 20, verse 31. He says this, uh, beginning with 30. It says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So when we see Mark writes, this is the beginning of the Gospel, he's not saying this is the beginning of the existence of Christ, but this is the beginning of those signs and wonders that testify what John says here, that He is the Christ. That He is the Son of God. And that He always has been and He always will be. So it begins like that. John chapter twenty thirty one. Not only so that the people in observation of what will take place in Mark, not so that just by this that they would be convinced of his person and work, but it goes much further than that. It goes on to tell it because you and I will sit and read this same gospel. We'll read these same accounts. And we don't have to have an extra biblical revelation. We don't have to have a dream or a vision. It's written here so that we too may come to know Christ. These people, if you think about it, as these miracles happen, they only see just what's happened in that town, just what's happened in that instance. They have one revelation, one miracle. 
But we've been blessed in such a way that we have the full account of God's work. And we see many miracles. This is a testimony. These entire, this entire collection of books is a testimony to all the miracles of Christ. Though it doesn't take all of them for us to understand, certainly He can convict us of His person and His work by just one very word. But we have a greater account than those of this time. We have the entire Bible. And so it's not only for those in Mark, in the time of Mark, to see these things, but it's for end-time saints so that we may be convinced of who Jesus Christ is, Lord and Savior, Son of God, Son of David, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And so as we read this, we see that eternal life is what we stand to gain. And with all certainty, if we're to gain eternal life, then we can't do that without also being found just and blameless before God simply because of Jesus Himself. For no other reason can we be found blameless, can we be made righteous or be seen as just before God, but only on the account of Jesus, the propitiation for our sins. He's issued to us His righteousness. Perfect righteousness. It's an unrivaled substitution from any perspective, Jesus Christ. There's a substitutionary death, a substitutionary righteousness, both limited and effectual only to those who in obedience act in faith, knowing that Jesus is the Lamb of God, sufficient to save from all sin. The faith being one wrought in Christ, one exercised through repentance, this is the completion of 400 years of silence. That's what we're seeing in Mark chapter 1 this, this morning. There's been no prophet in these days. 400 years of silence. And then comes one who has been prophesied, John the Baptist. From Malachi till now, nothing is said. God has not spoken to His people. And now we see John, the forerunner to Christ, in His initial coming before the first coming of Christ. Here's a testimony of John the Baptist before the initial coming of Christ. And now from this point forward, all the saints will proclaim. They'll be the second forerunners proclaiming that Christ is coming a second time. So in that sense, when we read Mark, there's the idea that the church is a type of John the Baptist proclaiming Christ as He'll come again. And so we see that these verses have been quoted. It says... Uh, in most commentaries from Isaiah, but it's also written in Malachi chapter 3. It says, Behold, I send a messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Thus, it is established the beginning of the gospel quoted initially in Mark chapter 1. It's not a formation of a new idea. Jesus isn't God's First, among many possible attempts to reconcile mankind, likewise, the beginning being proposed here is not a herald or an acclamation of a Savior to come. It isn't merely these things. This isn't the breaking news for those who are seeking God. 
It's not something that they haven't heard before. It's really old news. The declaration of a son has been broadcast since Genesis. A mystery hidden in all of the Old Testament scriptures. An establishment of God's handiwork. Which in its own existence is a saving revelation of Christ. For by His hands all things are saved and made. This is the revelation. It isn't something new to those who believe in God and who are followers of God. But it's the culmination of all those things prophecy beginning to be played out in front of their eyes. And so instead we now see that the beginning is this culmination. It's not a new idea. The beginning here isn't the first account of a Christ, of a Savior. But it's the first fruits of Christ's saving gospel and a realization and a revelation of an established, already new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And then this new covenant is revealed by Christ himself in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. It says, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's an affirmation of that which they had already heard, a mystery that's hidden. And So when we see Mark chapter 1 progress, John baptizes Jesus in the river Jordan. The Spirit descends, it says, as a dove. And the words are heard, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is then tempted 40 days in the wilderness and returns to Galilee to preach. He then calls His first disciples, the sons of Zebedee, Simon and Andrew. Jesus in Capernaum teaches in the synagogue on the Sabbath, commanding unclean spirits to detach from men. All of this leading up to what we'll see this morning. And the crowds were healed. And we're only in the first chapter of Mark. We're just in the beginning, it says. And then we come to this, the verse that we'll study this morning. Verse 40. It says, And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching Him and falling on His knees before Him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. So I want to take that verse and pick it apart a little bit. And I want to take the first two words after the and. It says a leper and a leper. Three words if you want to be technical. A leper. That's the first thing that we see. It's a man that's leprous. The biblical term here would denote several conditions. 
it would cover a broader spectrum than leprosy would today, but it, it would cover many things, many skin conditions, many irritations and sicknesses and ailments. In conjunction with that, by which we coin the term leprous today in modern times, this would be a man that would be infected to the point where the skin and the nerves and sometimes even the respiratory tract would have likely been ailed. He would be in severe pain, ailed to the point of constant agonizing terror from sickness. Oftentimes the wounds would be open and it would be very apparent that the motor skills and eyesight would have been lost and diminished for some. And so their entire lives would be heavily affected. Not only was leprosy physically painful, but it also would have taken a great emotional toll on its host. The condition would certainly make a detrimental impact on one's self-esteem and general confidence. We see this today. Young children in public schools are the worst. Something's wrong with somebody and they get picked on, they get teased on, they're shunned. Their life is miserable. That's why we have young kids committing suicide. It's very serious and it wasn't any different. The lepers in biblical times would have been treated the same way. And so there was a tremendous impact on their lives, both physically and emotionally. A great toll was taken. The people of, of a sickness to this sort would be ostracized to no end. They would be cast aside and looked down upon, shunned. And they'd be left to their own devices. No one would, would care for them. In very few instances, maybe the families would take care of them, but... Uh, by large, every account that we had, they would be left alone. So they were considered by people, as we see in the text, unclean, disgusting, filthy. And this was a sickness that people knew was completely uncurable. It was incurable. No one could do anything for it. A leper was simply always a leper. Mark chapter 1 paints a picture for us of a leper representing a man, a man with no hope, no hope to be made better, no hope to be made less in pain or to be made whole again. He had no hope that anything would change in his life or that by any stretch of the imagination that he could ever think he would be made well, completely well. It just wasn't a thought that crossed anyone's mind. Here's a man who's tainted with a filth that society looks upon and says, you're unworthy, you can't even come here. Don't be near us, don't come near us, you're, you, you can't do anything. You might make us sick. You might make us unclean like you. And it's something that they said, hey, this is permanent, it can't be washed away. So it says, a leper came to Jesus. He came to Jesus. Not only was he sick with no hope, but now we see a man who's sick with no hope, a, a permanent illness, a fatal disease, but he's coming to Jesus. This is very interesting because we have a man looking for the Son of God. There are several things unique about this particular situation. It's, in its most immediate context, the man coming to Jesus is begging to be healed. The astonishing part of this is comes from what we understand about mankind and his relationship to God and most assuredly the relationship that he has with Christ Jesus. Isaiah 64, 7 tells us this, that no man of his own will and his own nature would come to Christ. 
It says, no one arouses himself to take hold of you. No one calls upon your name. No one arouses himself to take hold of you. This doesn't apply to just some men. It applies to all men. So in that we see a picture of the work of Christ in this leper. No man would have come to someone to be healed on his own. It's a miracle that's taking place. Most assuredly the overall context here in Isaiah is spoken of in in soteriological terms. Salvation truths that no man will ever call upon the name of the Lord. The Lord must first change him. But there's also that physical, temporal implication that we can apply to the leper as he comes to Jesus. Even he will not come unless he's moved to do so. That's to say that the direct reference here is that no man is reverent of his own volition toward God or toward Christ or his miracle working power. His ability to save. And thus something miraculous must have taken place here to cause this man to come to Jesus. Furthermore, in the book of John, Jesus himself says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day again. We shouldn't take this out of context completely and misuse it because we're not belittling the fact that this is directly dealing with a spiritual man and his salvation. But there's also some literal temporal truth to that. We see it in Mark chapter 1 as we discuss the leprous man. After all, Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and had no beauty that we should desire him. This is telling us that a leprous man wouldn't have come to Jesus to be healed because there was something special about Jesus' physical appearance. Rather, there must have been a movement of God by this, towards this leprous man to cause him to seek out Christ. He wasn't physically beautiful goes on to say he was despised and rejected by men. doesn't say by some men or most men, but all men. Something had happened in the life of this leprous man to cause him to seek out Christ. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. Imagine that. It's true. The leprous man didn't come on his own will. He didn't didn't come because he saw something wonderful in Christ through his own flesh. It says he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even this leprous man would have turned his own way. But God for some reason has had him come to Jesus. The revelation of that truth is from John in chapter 20 verse 31. It's so that people could come to believe not only this man, but men after him, men in his presence, saints of today. Then what has happened? Why does the man seek Christ? He's heard of the good news. The beginning of the gospel from verse 1 in Mark chapter 1. The truth that although the finished work of the cross is yet to be made earthly, be made an earthly reality, Jesus Christ is still healer, despite that they don't know yet. 
He's still the comforter. He's still our sacrifice. He's still the way, the truth, and the life. And most importantly, He's still the resurrection. Yet to be fulfilled, He's still those things at this time. That's why the leprous man comes. He doesn't know. But it's being revealed to him. It's being made out in front of him. The truth of the gospel proclaimed from Genesis to maps. Very back of your Bible. So in our understanding, although men are still left unaware of the redemption to come in Christ, we're also not afforded the leisure to separate these attributes from His person here in Mark. We can't separate just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean we can set it aside. There's still the truths of a yet crucified Christ. The leper comes and we're given no concise details to say with confidence that this man is eternally spared. But there's a greater truth because if one man dies, he dies for the glory of God. So don't, don't look at this story and wonder if the leper was saved or not saved. It doesn't really matter. You can't change it. But the truth is whatever happened, it happened because God said it was good. And if it was just that one other man could be saved by seeing this miracle, then it's, then it's good. It's God's will. It's perfect. So we don't have any details about that. But we do know that a series of supernatural, miraculous events have taken place leading up to this point, And we know that from this point forward, even to now, miraculous events happen that could only be conducted in accordance with the will of God. Conducted through the will of God, by the Son of God, and the power of the Spirit of God. And... We have indeed seen this perishing man led to Jesus Christ by the workings of God. He's led to Jesus Christ. And now we must, we must understand that God has ordained these things. If you, if you don't take that away from here, your entire idea, your entire understanding of biblical accounts of a biblical Jesus will be skewed from this point forward. So keep that in your minds. We have to understand that. That God has ordained these things. He's predestined them. That Christ would be proclaimed. He would be praised. He would be exalted. Not merely by this man, but the crowds that he healed. By those who witnessed these things. But this also has happened so that others may hear of Christ. Certainly it leaves them without excuse in regards to the gospel. It leaves us all the same way. Without excuse. We know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We know that He is God incarnate. This was done so that men could be saved. It wasn't done so that a leper could lead a normal life and die. And that be it. It was a picture of what Christ will do on the cross. It's a picture of the uncleanliness that you and I have that is represented by the leper in Mark chapter 1. It's so that mercy could be made manifest by the person and in the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate. By His immeasurable grace, in order that perfect righteousness, once unobtainable, so far that no one could reach and grasp, no man had a chance for righteousness. Now, by one man, it's made obtainable. Through one man, it's gifted through death. And it leads to eternal life. And so we see that there was a leper and he came to Jesus. 
And then it says, as this man comes, he comes against what would be the natural desires of the flesh. For the miracles of Jesus by carnal men would have been viewed a little differently. They would have been uh, viewed in a light that would cause men to breed jealousy. They wouldn't have marveled and said, wow, this is great. We know how men act. When they see something awesome happen, the first thing they do is get jealous. A carnal man gets jealous. He gets angry. He hates somebody prospering. And he hates the one doing or gifting the prosperity. But it says that this man falls upon his knees. He sees Jesus doing these things. And he's no longer acting according to the flesh, but in the will of God, by the Spirit of God, he's acting a different way. He's falling upon his knees, beseeching, it says. It's another foreshadow of what will come. As John the Baptist begins here, the, the forerunner to Christ, the same is true of you and I, forerunner to the second coming of Christ, we will bow the knee. There's a mystery revealed here about this second coming. The Psalms say that we should worship and bow down, kneeling before our Maker. We also know that it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The truth established here is that all the regenerate or otherwise will fall upon their knees amidst the Almighty Christ. Some for fear and punishment, others from love and reverence. But this leper represents the people of God who come against their own desires, against their own volition, against their own will, and they're conformed, and they'll bow down and they'll confess that He is the only one whom they can have hope in, who can cleanse what needs to be cleansed, because He alone can save. And He is also the one that can destroy both body and soul. And so we've seen that the leper comes to Jesus, he's beseeching Him, he's falling upon his knees, and then it comes to the point that we really want to look at this morning. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This is the most miraculous part of this entire verse. If you missed it, you've missed everything. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then precisely depicted in its summation in the following verses, 41 through 45, we see exactly how willing he is, exactly what that will mean for the man who was once unclean. We're given a divine glimpse into the character and attributes of Jesus Christ. Distributed throughout these verses are those things that are the holy composition, the actual makeup of the person of Jesus Christ in God. With a short statement, the leprous man is really saying, if you are willing, it's, he, he's shouting it. If you are willing, Christ must be willing. It's not a decision that man makes. It's not a, a good idea or a trial that we can just see if it works out. But it says, if you are willing, this is the truth of salvation. A picture of the gospel. Jesus Christ must be willing. He's not waiting on you because... If he waited on you, you would never respond any way than that according to your nature, which is always sinful and wicked. A man can only act according to his nature, not according to what he ought to do. The response, the answer of the tongue, Proverbs 16, verse 1 says, is from the Lord. This man 
has realized this. Lord, you must be willing. It says Jesus Christ was certainly willing to cleanse the leper. He was certainly willing. He was able to cleanse. And through his willingness, we're never alone. But his willingness to cleanse is always amidst his mercifulness. He will only cleanse because he's also merciful at the same time because we don't deserve cleansing. We don't deserve his righteousness. We don't deserve his sacrifice. After all, we kick and scream. The natural man hates the things of God. He hates God himself. And so there are several points here about God's willingness. I want us to understand in the cleaning of the leper, God is willing not only to clean, but there's several things he's willing to do. First, he's willing to hear. He's willing to hear what the leprous man has to say. Certainly this is true for those of us who are found renewed, found crucified with Christ and resurrected in Christ. We have this new creature, a new heart that we've been given, a heart of flesh that replaces a heart of stone because he's willing to hear. The leprous man, he heard his petitions. He heard his desire to be cleansed. And for us, he hears our prayers. He hears our petitions. There must be that fact that we can only come because someone else sent us, because God has drawn us to Christ, because we wouldn't come on our own, Isaiah says. But then when we see this here, we also know that He only hears the cries of those who belong to Him. His ear is far from the wicked. He hears not their cries. So something's going on here. Jesus Christ is willing first to hear. Then Psalm forty thirteen says He's willing to rescue. It says, Please be willing, O Lord, to rescue me. Oh, Lord, hurry and help me. There's no other chance. There's no other way for us unclean lepers to be saved unless Jesus is willing also not to hear but to rescue. You know, a lot of people can hear your cry. Think about it. Titanic was going down. How many people could hear the transmissions, but how many people were able to rescue? Same thing spiritually. Many people may hear your cries. They may see the troubles, the torment, the reality that sin is destroying your life. But how many are able to rescue? There's only one. Jesus Christ. And then not only is He willing to rescue you, but in order to rescue you, He must be able to forgive you and must be willing to forgive. So Jesus Christ is then again willing to forgive. 1 John chapter 1, verse 19. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And, forgive, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what the, the leper was looking for. This is a beautiful picture that's painted for us in Mark of the redemption to come. He's willing to hear. He's willing to rescue. He's willing to forgive. And because He's willing to forgive, that means He's also willing to cleanse. That willingness to do all those things is a willingness to respond. He was willing to respond to our wickedness, our hatred, with His loving kindness and His mercy and His grace, insomuch that He causes us to be regenerate and conform us to the image of His Son. And now, because we're His people, we're of His flock, we're of His fold. We're no longer slaves to righteousness, but we're slaves to Him. He's also willing to respond. 
Not just in spiritual matters, but in temporal earthly matters. Certainly He responds. Every day, we need breath. We need finances. We need relationships with the people of God. We need mercy. And certainly forgiveness. We need love. Christ is able and willing to respond with all of these things. And next, He's willing to give. He's forgiven. He's heard your prayers. He's been merciful. He's rescued you. But what do you need? There's a culmination that we're leading up to. He's willing to give. He's willing to give as an immediate, eternal possession. Everlasting life. Not only does He give us everlasting life, but He gives us His righteousness. It's imputed to us. He gives us even temporal earthly blessings. The things that I mentioned previously. The things that we all still need to live this life. Even to make it to the death of this body. In order that we may receive a resurrected body. We need God's continual grace and mercy. It's only available through Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 say this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will So that we who were the first to hope in Christ may be the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Then we see His willingness to obediently sacrifice. He can do all of these things because he was obedient unto death. John chapter 10. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So he is willing The leper says, if you're willing, certainly he's willing. He's willingly giving his life, obedient to death, even the death of the cross. He didn't necessarily enjoy it. He wasn't rushing headlong into death because we see many times, excuse me, in the book of John, his hour had not yet come. His time has not yet come, so he's not rushing things. But in the appropriate time, according to the will and purpose of God the Father, his hour comes and he says, If so, let this cup pass. But if not, he goes to the cross. 
The cup of God's wrath is drinking down by Christ. It's absorbed the full measure of His wrath. He's crushed, it says. And then we see that ultimately all of these things, all of the willingnesses of Christ to do these certain things that we've talked about occur because He's willing that none should perish. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. He's talking about the church, those predestined, those elect. He's not willing to usward that any should perish, but come to repentance. So He's willing also to not let one slip through the cracks. Not let one miss salvation that belongs to Him. Not let one who has responded appropriately to the gospel because of the answer of God by the Spirit of God. None shall perish. Christ has been obedient because He is the willing God. He's willing to do according to the will of His Father, to ransom a peculiar people for Himself, in order that the Father may one day and for all time receive the glory due His name. He was willing, like with the leprous man, to make me clean. He's been willing to make you clean. A hope that we had in no one else. Spiritually, lepers, for eternity. And He's been willing to make you clean. Requires a response to the gospel. He's willing to give you that. Repentance and faith. He's the author and finisher of that faith. There's no one like him. Jesus Christ is not only willing, but he's able. He's not only willing and able, but he's also uniquely sufficient. No one else can make clean what for some is a permanent stain. There is no other hope. We're talking about sin. The text tells us that Jesus didn't respond like you would think a Walmart janitor would respond to a bathroom call. Unhappy, disgusted, tired and slack, moving slow. Instead, he responds with what the Bible says here, with compassion. It says he stretched out his hand and touched him. Moved with compassion. He responds because He's the Creator. He's the only one who has this love, this compassion for His creation because it belongs to Him. That which is blemished, that which is unclean belongs to Him and so He's willing to respond at the appropriate time, joyfully, knowing that He's doing the will of God the Father. In one touch, that's all it took, it says. And it says immediately, after this one touch. So we see that Christ is responding, I am willing. Be cleansed. It made me think of this, of this verse. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to His name. That touch that the leprous man received is the same one that we sing about. It's a spiritual touch. It's the drops of of Christ's blood being applied to the heart of sinful man insomuch as that He causes him to be regenerate and change his ways. This is a response of compassion. 
Jesus, like he later does with Lazarus, commands what he wills of this man. He commands him to be cleansed. Just like he said, Lazarus, come out. Arise. He's done the same thing. Immediately, the leprosy is gone. Sin answers to Christ. The man stood immediately cleansed. And upon receiving Christ and His Holy Spirit, we also are cleansed like the leper. It's immediate. It's not partially. It doesn't, it's not waiting upon our works. It's not waiting upon a certain financial offering to an institution that we call the church. It's not waiting on this special sowing of a seed, so to speak. It's not waiting for you to sin no more to be perfect, but it's immediately. We're cleansed immediately from guilt and sin. We're justified before God positionally. It's not based on works, but it's based on this imputed righteousness, the willingness of Christ, the cleanliness of the man, Christ Jesus. Like the leper, once Jesus cleans, there's no more becoming filthy again. It's not to say that you'll be without sin. It's not to say that you won't make a spot on your name amongst the men of this earth that you may do some detriment to your testimony, but you're clean. This is why Peter didn't need anything but a foot washing. Not his hands and his head also, not his whole body, but he was already clean once and for all. The blood that Christ applies to the sin-stained heart is not merely a cleaner, but for those of you who can think similarly in, in painting terminology, he's also a sealer. Nothing else can penetrate. There's no room for anything else. It's a barrier. He's a fortress. Nothing unwanted will penetrate what belongs to God, what is sealed by His authority, by His shed blood on the cross. There is formed this mighty fortress that we saw last week. It's a barrier to seal, and His name is Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, The Holy Spirit of God, in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We're all the leper of Mark chapter 1. We all stand in need of cleansing. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. You can't cry out enough to deserve it. You can't give up enough things or sacrifice enough to ever establish a cleansing from Christ. He needs to draw you. He needs to call you. He needs to give you conviction. He needs to establish in your mind that He alone is sufficient. He alone is the only hope to cleanse what is filthy. And so when I leave you with this text today, I would say don't look at this like you may have been brought up and see it as an, another Bible story, an account of a miracle, because it's not an account of one miracle. It's an account of the reoccurring miracle from now until the second coming of Christ when unclean men will be made clean. 
by the power of the gospel, the power of his Holy Spirit, the sufficiency of his sacrifice on Calvary's cross. And so I want to leave you with, once again, uh, another few song lyrics. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, You've allowed us to open Your Word today. God, I pray that Your Spirit would powerfully convict us of our own uncleanliness, of our own unrighteousness. God calls us to fall upon our knees and worship because You're a willing God, willing to cleanse those who belong to You. Lord, let us fall at the foot of the cross and never leave. Let us rely upon your Son for his sufficiency and salvation. Lord, there are people here today who don't know how much they need cleansing. Lord, even for us who do know we need cleansing, we don't understand the extent, the price of sin, the costliness. God calls us to see how desperately we need you to cleanse us. How desperately we need Jesus Christ. Lord, reveal Him to us in His Word, in Your Word. Lord, let us remind one another of how mighty His work on the cross has been. Lord, give us a burden for the Gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.